0: We are continuing through Hebrews. Why don't we stand to our feet here and turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, and we will begin our reading in verse 14. <clears throat> Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive the mercy, sorry, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to come before you this morning with these people. We praise you, Lord, for who you are, for what you've done, for sending us a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who's made a way back to you. Lord, you have forgiven our sins through Jesus Christ, removed your wrath from us through Jesus Christ. And now we can confidently draw near to you. And we do so this morning through prayer, through singing, through fellowship, and through your word being preached. We love You, Lord, and we praise You. I pray that You would use me and my words this morning to speak truly of You and inspire worship in our hearts, those of us who confess the faith. And for those visiting here this morning, Lord, who don't know You or have trusted in You, I pray that You would be drawing them to Yourselves even now. We we praise You, Lord. May Your name be glorified this morning, not just here in our church, but in all the churches in our city, and especially the churches in the Crossway Network. I uh, Lift up Pastor Daniel, who's preaching at Living Water Fellowship this morning. I pray you would anoint his words and glorify your name through him and his preaching and all the other churches, as I said, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me tell you about a man. He was born September 13th. 1967 in Dallas, Texas, he began running track at the age of 10, and by high school, he held the school record in the 200 meters and the 4x400 meter relay. He earned a scholarship to Baylor University, and upon graduation, he was ranked number one in the world in both the 200 and the 400 meters. In 1996, at the Olympic Games in Atlanta, Georgia, he won Olympic gold in the 200 in a world record time, and the 400, making himself the only male athlete to ever win the 200 and the 400 in the same Olympic Games. And then in the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia, he defended his 400-meter title, the only man in history to win back-to-back gold medals in the 400-meters. He won eight gold medals at various world championships. If we count his silver and his bronze medals, he won 56 medals at world championships and four gold medals at the Olympic Games. He had two nicknames, the world's fastest man, though that's probably been taken by Usain Bolt now, but he still has this nickname, the man with the golden shoes. Does anyone besides Beck know who I'm talking about? Who said it? Michael Johnson, way to go. Didn't assume there was very many track nerds in here, but yes, the man is Michael Johnson. Here he is in his world record time with his golden spikes. There's a couple other pictures of him. He looks a lot better than I did in high school, doesn't he? That's why he has a gold medal and I don't, because... But that's not the end of the story at all. That's just some context for you guys to understand the real story that I'm about to tell you guys. One fateful day in June of 2009, that was my junior year of college. I was competing in the National Track and Field Championship in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And because of lightning delays, my qualifying round of my 400 wasn't run until 1130 at night. I had a couple other teammates who were still having to compete that late as well. So at around midnight, me and my two other exhausted teammates stumbled into the only place that was still open for dinner, the ever-classy IHOP. And I'll never forget, we walk in, we turn left, there's a few people in there, probably all from the track meet. And as she's bringing us to a booth, two booths away, I see Michael Johnson sitting in a booth right next to another guy with, with a friend. And my heart leapt into my throat. I started shaking. I had yet another adrenaline rush as if I hadn't had enough running races. That day, I was freaking out, you guys. I idolized Michael Johnson. For me, or I think for any sprinter, to see Michael Johnson between the 1990s and the 2000s would be like a basketball player seeing Michael Jordan or a hockey player seeing Wayne Gretzky. This is one of the greatest sprinters who's ever lived. I had read books about and by Michael Johnson. I watched all the videos. I knew his time. This man was my idol. And so my friend, he's a great friend, still is, and teammate Marshall, he noticed him a little bit later. I'm already sitting there shaking with my jaw open. He says, dude, and I'm like, I know who that is. Don't worry. And he encourages me to go ask him for an autograph. Or a picture, and I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I'm starstruck, as it were. But he convinces me. So, in fear and trembling, I approached the syrupy throne of Michael Johnson. <laughs> and I don't remember what I said. I totally blacked out. But knowing me, because I am me, I would have said something like this Excuse me, Mr. Johnson, I'm sorry to bother you, but you are my hero. Can I please have an autograph or a picture? And he barely looks up at me. He literally puts his hands up and says, no, not right now, man. I don't want people to recognize me. I don't want my spot to get blown up. Maybe he said sorry. I don't remember him saying sorry. And I walk back to my booth, exerting more effort not to cry than I did 30 minutes earlier in a 400-meter sprint. It was everything in me not to cry that whole dinner at IHOP with my teammates. But there's a silver lining, a bronze lining, a copper lining. We were eating whatever we were eating, and I was just looking down, still trying not to cry, and I think it was probably Marshall said, dude, he's calling us over. And he had finished his meal, and he was about to leave the front door of IHOP, and he said, come here, we can take a quick picture if you want. And I smiled. Uh, he barely smiled, and here's the proof. There I am with Marshall and Kalindra and Michael Johnson barely smiling. And to be honest, um, that's a fake smile for me. I was still devastated. Um, I don't know why I should, I should throw him a bone. It's probably hard to be famous. But here's the point, you guys. Michael Johnson let me down. He couldn't bear the weight of my happiness. I couldn't approach Him boldly. He couldn't perfectly sympathize with me or my life or my teammates' lives. There's only one human being who will never let us down. A human who isn't only a human, but God. And through Him, we can boldly approach the throne of the God of the universe and say of Him, Abba, Father, A God-man who can perfectly sympathize with every weakness and temptation we struggle with. It is the man, Jesus Christ. And He is the one to whom we will look this morning. I have had such a worshipful week this this week preparing for this sermon. I believe God's going to just spew it out of me. We just get to look at Jesus Christ this whole time in this passage this morning. Hebrews 4, 14-16 may be one of the most well-known passages of Holy Scripture. It belongs in the Hall of Fame, says Pastor Joey. It speaks of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. And tells us about His title and office of great High Priest. And that even though He is God, He did walk the earth as a man. He suffered and was tempted so he can sympathize with his brothers and sisters. Contextually, it's important to remember that these themes were first mentioned in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, which says this, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Last week, Pastor Aaron preached on chapter 4, verses 1-13. through He talked about how we enter God's rest through belief in Jesus. And if you look back at verse 13, it says no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That's a terrifying verse unless we have a great high priest. Why can we enter God's rest? How can we not fall away as is one of the themes of the book of Hebrews because of who Jesus is? We've seen so far that He is the Supreme Son. Supreme over angels, supreme over Moses. He is and gives rest to God's people. And What we see this morning, He is the great high priest. The message this morning will be split in two. Just two halves. There's a lot to each though. What we learn, if you're a nerd, that's the indicatives. And what we are to do, the imperatives. If you want to rhyme, I'll rhyme it for you. We're going to learn eight things about a who and two things to do. So first, let's consider eight things that we learn in this passage from about Jesus. Number one, it's just zoomed out. As we consider all that verses 14 and 15 teach, we're going to see Jesus described as divine and as a man. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. I'm not saying that to try to impress you guys with big words. I just assume that you're all theology nerds like me and you like learning and I like teaching. So there you go. It's called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic just means personal. So it's the personal union in Jesus of two natures, God and man. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man or truly God and truly man. The Chalcedonian Creed defines it this way. It's a long quote, but it was too good not to use, so hopefully it's going to be up there. This was written in 451 A.D. And we've not come up with a better definition for the hypostatic union. So read along with me. Our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards His manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards His Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but, as, but yet as regards His manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation, of, the, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him, And our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. You guys, this is orthodox theology. To deny this, the combined divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ, not overstating it, is a blasphemous heresy. This is why we can't accept Jehovah Witness theology or Mormon theology, or even evangelical Christian theology that would deny that when Jesus walked the earth, He was truly and fully God. There, there's a famous church in Northern California that denies this, that says, when Jesus walked the earth, He was only a man. He, he, he left all of His divinity behind. That's utterly wrong. That is leaving orthodoxy. At the end of the day, knowing the term hypostatic union isn't important. But the concept behind the term is very important, infinitely important. Worship-inducing and mysterious. One author says this, no one person satisfies the complex longings of the human heart like the God-man. God has made the human heart in such a way that it will never be eternally content with that which is only human. Finitude can't satisfy our thirst for the infinite and God has placed eternity on our hearts. So that's number 1. That's what we're going to see throughout these verses. This reality of Jesus being one person but having two natures, God and man, called the hypostatic union. Number 2. And we're just gonna, if you notice I'm just walking through the text. So if you're trying to, I'm not going to tell you where the verses are. It's only 3 verses, but I'm just going to walk through the text here. Number 2, he is our great high priest. The function of any Old Testament priest, as many of you know, was to be a mediator between God and man. He was to represent God to the people and the people to God. In the Old Testament, the primary function of the high priest was to administer and direct the sacrificial system. He alone was allowed to go behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. And that once a year on the Day of Atonement. No sacrifices could be made except by the priest. And no forgiveness could be found apart from the sacrifices. And these high priests and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament were never meant to be permanent. You guys know that. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, we have amazing pastors who are always preaching and teaching to us biblical theology. Everything in the Old Testament is meant to be a shadow and a pointer and a type which is fulfilled in Christ. They were always meant to point God's people to their need for something better. Something that would permanently cleanse them from sin. And a better priest who had no sin of his own. And that is Jesus. The great high priest. The only one who has or ever will have that title. Not only an earthly high priest, but a heavenly one. The great one. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. He perfectly represented God to man. He says, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And He brings man to God as perfect, clothed in His righteousness. That's number two. He is our great High Priest. Number three, He has passed through the heavens. I believe this is a reference to His ascension. So often we miss this when we're thinking about and speaking the Gospel. I'm guilty of it too. But we think of the Gospel as the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we stop there, then it's as if Jesus is still walking around the earth somewhere. And He's not anymore. He ascended. I'm I'm catechizing my son, Zeke, right now. If you don't know what that means, it just means it's a way of teaching somebody something by asking questions and giving answers. You memorize the question and you memorize the answer and i've been convicted by this in the last few months not just from studying this text so i've made up my own question and answer for zeke uh, especially if i if i die soon i want him to know the gospel before he te- learns any of the other catechisms which are good but i say zeke what, what is the gospel and he says honestly i don't know dad and i'm like dude we've been working on this for 2 months <laughs> but i gave him the answers a big word salad so it's overwhelming to him but i'm going to push him i don't care that he's only 4 and i tell him zeke The Gospel is the good news. So first, I'm just teaching him: Gospel means good news. It's the good news that God has made a way for sinners to be saved through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He went back to heaven. He's seated there. He ascended. seated at the right hand of God the Father. Ephesians 4.10 says this, He who descended, is the One who also ascended far above the heavens that He might fill all things. Ephesians 1.20 says this, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus isn't only our great High Priest because He is a divine man, it's also because He has gone through the heavens and sits as great High Priest in the heavenly temple, not the earthly one, at the right hand of God. His atoning work is done. He finished that. But it's not as if He's reading the newspaper and smoking a stogie on His heavenly throne. One of the main things He does for us now is He intercedes for us. Those of you who have read um, Gentle and Lowly, there's a chapter about this. He's interceding. His His atoning work is done. But it's called His heavenly session. He's sitting there interceding for us. He prays and speaks to the Father on our behalf for us. You guys, what a comforting truth that is. What a needed reminder that Jesus Christ, God our Savior, speaks to the Father for us. Other places, Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit also helps us in our prayers. This God loves us. That's number three. He's passed through the heavens. Number four, it may seem obvious, but it's there in the text. His name is Jesus. Jesus is a human name. There were other men named Jesus in ancient Israel. That's why so often He's referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. So we can differentiate Him between the other guys who were named Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which was pronounced Yehoshua or Yeshua. You guys have heard that before. It means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh saves. It's a name Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, didn't choose. It was told them by God through the angel. Matthew 1, 21 and 22. The angel speaking to Joseph says this, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Jesus is a human name, but it cannot be divorced from its divine implications. The Heidelberg Catechism has a question and answer on the name of Jesus. It says this, Why is the Son of God called Jesus? That is, a Savior. The answer, because He saves us and delivers us from our sins. And likewise, because we ought not to seek, neither can we find salvation in any other. One author says this, Though Jesus is a human name, its meaning suggests that in this man God has come to us. For God says in Isaiah 43:11, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no savior. Acts 4:12 Peter in his sermon says, and there is no salvation in there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No sweeter name than the name of Jesus. No sweeter name have we ever known. One author says this brought me to tears this week. More than a great teacher. More than an enlightened man. More than a worker of miracles. More than a source of meaning in life. More than a self-help guru. More than a self-esteem builder. More than a political liberator. More than a caring friend. More than a transformer of cultures. More than a purpose for the purposeless. Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. He is my Jesus, and He is your Jesus. That's number four. Number five, He is the Son of God. At His baptism, the Father said of Jesus Christ, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is begotten, not made or created, as the Bible and the creeds say. Jesus Christ is the second Person of the Trinity. He came from God to earth. We call that the Incarnation. And as Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Matthew 16.16, 16, Jesus asked His disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John 5.18, Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are mad at Him. And John 5.18 says this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father in that scene. Making Himself equal with God. To be the Son of God as Jesus Christ is is to be equal with God. And this claim is a big part of what led Him to the cross. And there are various... Cults that say he didn't ever claim to be God. And it's like, well, maybe you haven't read the Bible. Because everywhere he's claiming to be God. And it's, and it may be the thing that earned him the cross. Because the Pharisees didn't like a lot of his other teaching. But to say that you were God and equal with God was blasphemy. And they say, get it, take him, Romans, nail him to a cross. He's a blasphemer. That's number five. We'll take Numbers 6 and 7 together because we can't separate them. Number 6, He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because number 7, He experienced temptation and weakness just like we do. To sympathize means to suffer with. Jesus walked the earth. He experienced real life. He wasn't the heavenly bubble boy. The Father didn't protect Him from weaknesses, temptations, or suffering. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be thirsty, hungry, despised, lonely, rejected, scorned, ashamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused. He knows what it is to suffer, to be tortured, and to be killed. Whatever we are going through, He can sympathize. He does sympathize. I know, as always, when I'm speaking, there are many people in here who are in a dark night of the soul. And your great high priest, he can sympathize. He does know what you're going through. One says this, he's like a doctor who's endured the same disease. It's a funny aspect of human nature how we feel this instant connection with someone who's suffered the same things as us. There are entire ministries built around this, like Grief Share. When you lose a child, when a parent loses a child or a loved one, there's this whole ministry that just connects people who have suffered in the same way, and we feel so much more comfort. Oh, yeah, you've been through that. You get me. Jesus Christ has been through it all, and He gets us better than we get ourselves. C.S. Lewis says this he argues that Jesus Christ knows temptation actually even better than we do. C.S. Lewis makes the point by describing a man walking in the wind. And once the wind of temptation gets too strong, the man lies down, giving in and thus not knowing what it would have been like ten minutes later. Jesus never lay down. He endured all the same weaknesses, temptations, and trials that we do without ever giving in. I'm getting a little bit into point a. We're not explicitly there yet. But He never lay down in the wind. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us because only Jesus knows the cost. Am I saying something funny? Or <laughs> Today is the day of Chad's spot getting blown up just like I blew up Michael Johnson's spot. It's good for me. I was like, "Man, some of these jokes haven't hit, but now I'm like talking about the Jesus sinlessness and it's funny." I love this church. We we don't put productions on here. If you're if you're visiting here, sometimes the worship team messes up, sometimes we mess up. We need the gospel. We're thankful for each other. <laughs> <coughs> Hebrews 12.4, this is an amazing verse. We're going we're to hear it preached in a few weeks or months whenever it comes. Still regarding the sinlessness of Jesus, walking in the wind, never laying down. says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And maybe some Christian martyrs have. Some, some Christians have lost their heads and shed their own blood in resistance to the sinfulness of the world. But Jesus Christ, He, he never lay down in the wind because to do so would have been sin. And that leads us to number 8. Jesus Christ is sinless. If Jesus Christ had sinned, He would have been disqualified from being our perfect and necessary sacrifice. Again, the Old Testament foreshadowed the need for a perfect sacrifice. Leviticus 22.21 says this, and when anyone offers a sacrifice, of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Numbers 28.3 says this, And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs a year old, without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. Verse 9 of Numbers 28, On the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish. And then verse 11, at the beginnings of your months you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old, without blemish. You guys get the point. There are many other verses. Jesus Christ was the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. No blemish. Think about this. Not one word. Not one thought, not one deed was tainted by sin. That should humble all of us. What a contrast to sinful humanity. Even as I stand up here and preach this, it is tainted with sin. And what worship is realized when we consider the sinless man who gave his life for sinful mankind? So let me tell you about a man. His name is Jesus. He is our Savior. He is truly God and truly man. He's the Son of God. He's our great High Priest. He has passed through the heavens and seated at the right hand of God and He's interceding for us. And He is sympathetic with our weaknesses and temptations. He is sinless. That is a man. That is my Savior and Yours. So what should we do We get this beautiful picture of our Savior, our great High Priest, and what are we to do? There are two imperatives in this text. Number one, at the end of verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession. We must take hold on this. This is continual. To hold something takes continual effort. But the effort doesn't save us. Remember that. The effort doesn't save us. The triune God saves us and enables us by His Spirit to hold fast to Him. And what is our confession? could be many things, this whole book. But based on these verses, the confession is that Jesus, our great High Priest, has made a way for sins to be forgiven through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The truths I've spoken of, the truths in this book, are the greatest truths in all the universe. What we say reveals what's in our heart and dictates the way we live. So our confessions are extremely important. And as we have seen and will see in the book of Hebrews the audience was wrestling with the idea of walking away from the faith. Walking away from Jesus, from the Christian confession. And may the Lord give us, the Crossing Church, the grace not to consider the same. May we hold fast to this confession. And after considering the truths in verses 14 and 15 that Cause worship in my heart. How can we not hold fast to this, you guys? To what other confession or person could we go? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. He is the only God man who can save. One says this let us never deny him. Never be ashamed of him before men. Let us hold fast to the enlightening doctrines of Christianity in our heads, the enlivening principles of it in our hearts, the open profession of it in our lips, and our practical and universal subjection to it in our lives. May we hold fast to this. And number two, confidently draw near. Second thing we need to do, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can confidently draw near to the throne of God, which is a throne of grace for those of us who have made a confession of faith. If you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, I call you to come to the throne to put your faith in Jesus Christ, Repent of your sins. And it will be a throne of grace. But if you don't, I love you enough to tell you it won't be a throne of grace. Someday the throne is coming back to earth. And it's going to be a throne of wrathful judgment. The scariest thing the universe has ever seen. But for now, God has still offered grace. Come to His Son, Jesus Christ. and You will get grace and mercy. I think the Lord gave me two ways to understand this better this week. I love God and His providence always doing this in my life, and I'm sure the other pastors as they're preparing. I had two pictures of this this in my life this week. I'm going to pay forward to you guys. One's from an interaction with my daughter, and one is actually from God's Word. I got home one day after work, and I grabbed an apple out of the fridge, took some bites of it, and my second child, my first daughter, Callie, she's two, I put the apple down and she runs up and kind of gets in my lap, just gets in my bubble, grabs my apple, takes a bite and puts it on the table. I'm like, oh, heck no. You, 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 you don't do that. My life, my world doesn't revolve around you. You need to ask daddy. And to be honest, I said that. I said, Callie, come on. Like, I'm going to give you a bite of the apple, but you need to ask daddy. And then as I'm studying this passage, I'm like, yeah, but look at the confidence that she came to her father like, daddy, I don't even have to ask. I'm going to get a bite of that apple because daddy loves me and he's not going to deny me it. And I never would, even if I was starving and hadn't eaten for three days. My daughter is getting the whole apple if she wants it. We can poke holes in that illustration, throw me a bone. That's just a picture of how we should run to the father confidently. Like he loves us. We can get in his lap and know that we're going to get everything we need. And the greatest thing we need is him. And he's given that to us. If me being evil knows how to give good gifts of apples, how much more does the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who draw near to him? The second is this: My life group and I were studying Esther Collindale, it's fun. We're doing great. and I'm one of the leaders, and so I've been reading ahead. And there's this scene in Esther. Esther's married to this let me filter horrendous man named King Ahasuerus, a.k.a. King Xerxes. She's married to him. And yet, there's a rule in the land that you can't approach King A, that's what we call him in our life group because his name's kind of hard to say, King A, without being called by him. Otherwise, you're going to die unless he holds out his golden scepter. What a crazy rule. He's such an arrogant man that you can't even come to him unless he's called you. And if you do, you're going to die. But the throne of our God, it's it's as if if God has given us the golden scepter for those who confess the faith. And we know we can get grace and mercy. And it's always there for those of us who are in Christ. What a great King we have compared to the kings of this world. I approached Michael Johnson in fear and trembling. Though he isn't awe-inspiring, especially compared to God. And yet, we can approach the only One who is infinitely awe-inspiring without fear and trembling, confidently knowing that He loves us and He will care for us. And when we do draw near to God, which we do through the various ways we worship, prayer, singing, Bible reading, fellowship, so many other things. We can trust, we can trust that we will receive mercy. Mercy for the past sins we've committed. Mercy for the sins we've committed in that moment that we're drawing near to God in worship. And grace for the present and for the future. Every time we are in need, which is all the time. If you don't know that you're in need every second, every moment of every day, you are. I wrote a little poem. I'm going to end with it. Behold the God-man, Jesus Christ, and praise His holy name. He is the Lord, our great High Priest, who bore our sin and shame. He knows the path we tread upon better even than we. His valley's darker and His road harder, so gained His sympathy. So when mercy and grace are needed, we can confidently run to the throne of our God through our great High Priest, His Son. Let's pray. We draw near now, Lord, confidently praising You for the mercy and grace we receive through our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. We love You because You first loved us. Lord, I pray that hearts would just be full of worship right now as mine is, as we have just seen a beautiful picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we do because what we've seen in him. Lord, we hold fast to you this morning. And we only do it because your spirit is in us, enabling us to do so. We praise you for who you are and what you've done, Lord. Pray your blessing over this these your people, and that we would have worshipful hearts the rest of this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.